0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Welcome, everyone, to today's Institute for Government event, How Taiwan Became a Coronavirus Success Story. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director for Data and Digital Government at the Institute, and it's a good morning from me here in London to all of you. And a very good evening to Taipei, from where I'm delighted to say we're joined by Audrey Tong, the Taiwanese government's digital minister. We'll hear from Audrey shortly, but first some digital housekeeping. If you'd like to tweet along with today's event, you can do so using the hashtag IFGDigital, and we'll be live tweeting from at IFGEvents. If you'd like to ask Audrey a question, you can submit them to me in three different ways. First, by using our slider, where you can also vote on the questions that you like the most. You can get there using bit.ly ifgtong as well as the longer link you'll have had in the event invitation. Second, you can use hashtag IFG Digital on Twitter. And third, you can drop a question into the chat on this live stream broadcast. And if you use Twitter or live stream, one of my colleagues will drop that question into Slido. Video and audio of this event will be available on the IFG website afterwards. So how did Taiwan become a coronavirus success story? Here in the UK, debate rages as to whether the death toll is closer to 40,000 or 60,000. Whereas in Taiwan, a country of 24 million people with lots of travel to China, there have been fewer than 450 cases and only seven deaths. While many countries have struggled to negotiate their way into and out of lockdown, Taiwan has kept its schools and businesses open. Even the Taiwanese response to panic buying toilet roll was rather different to ours, something I'm sure we'll come on to. So how has Taiwan done all of that? Well, answering that question and many more today is Audrey Tong, digital minister in the Taiwanese government since 2016. Audrey dropped out to junior high school and had founded her first business by the age of 16, later becoming an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. She returned to Taiwan and joined its vibrant civic technology community, a community responsible for projects including GovZero, an open source, open government collaboration, and V-Taiwan, a pioneering public engagement platform. Since Audrey became Digital Minister, even more of that civic hacker expertise and way of working has been brought into government, with Taiwan seen as a world leader on everything from open data to open consultation. Um, So I'll start asking Audrey some questions, I'll then start taking your questions and putting those to her as well, and we'll be finishing at around 10.30 British summer time, so just under an hour. So without further ado, um, Audrey, uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, today how did uh, how did the taiwanese government first learn that uh, coronavirus might be uh, providing a problem that you needed to deal with
1: yeah, hello, uh, and have a good local time, I guess, uh, everyone. Um, today marks uh, eight weeks since our last locally transmitted case, uh, meaning that um, as of today, uh, it's the start of our new way of life post-COVID. So um, I first would like to express my gratitude, uh, for, first and foremost, uh, to the collective intelligence uh, system. In Taiwan, uh, we have three principles of social innovation, fast, fair, and fun which all contributed to the counter-coronavirus efforts. And collective intelligence relies on the society to report um, anything new that may be happening. And we have, in particular, Dr. Li Wenliang, the PRC whistleblower, to thank, uh, because Li Wenliang shared, that there may be new SARS cases, actually seven confirmed SARS cases, uh, back in last December. And whereas many jurisdictions began, uh, heating that early this year, Taiwan started last year. So as you can see in the Taiwan equivalent of Reddit, it's called the PTD. Someone with the nickname Normal Pipe reposted Dr. Li Wenle's message on the very early hours of December 31st. And because of that, we immediately, um, it went, um, viral (laughs) on the PTD meaning that uh, people upvoted it and because of that our medical officers noticed this post and issued that order the very next day that says all passengers flying in from Wuhan to Taiwan need to start health inspection the very next day. And so this says to me two things. First, the civil society trusts the government enough to talk about possible new SARS outbreaks in a public forum, because we're, according to civicus morning, a, the most open society in the whole of Asia. And also the government trusts citizens enough to take it seriously and treat it as if SARS happened again, something we've always been preparing since 2003, including setting up at the central epidemic command center even before we have the first Locally com- uh, confirmed case. So they run this daily press conferences until yesterday when we officially declare we're now in post pandemic.
0: Excellent. Um, well, congratulations on, on being post pandemic, um, something I know those of us uh, in the UK would uh, welcome happening quite soon. Um, so You sort of found out uh, via the sort of Taiwanese Reddit um, that this was going to be a problem. How did the, how did the government sort of swing into action? Uh, What, what did you put in place uh, to be able to deal with everything?
1: Sure. So uh, the CECC, the Central Epidemic Command Center, Epidemic Command Center, is the the core, the cornerstone of this rapid, fast response system, because uh, for many months, um, ever since January, they hold a daily press conference, which is always live streamed, and we work with the journalist community uh, and making sure the CECC answer all the questions. And this is a new structure. Back in two thousand and three, when SARS happened, the municipal government, the local officials, the medical officers from the central government all said very different things. And it led to a very chaotic uh, response. So post SARS, were like, yeah, uh, 37 people dead, is 37 people too many. We need to run yearly drills, and as if SARS has happened again every year, and increase our response system. So anyone uh, with a telephone can call 1922 and learn about the latest CCC announcements. And so any new idea to the CCC, which always gets responded the very next day. For example, there was one day in April, where young boys said they don't want to go to school because their schoolmate may laugh at him for wearing a pink medical mask. And the very next day, everybody in the CEC press conference started wearing pink medical masks, um, making sure that everybody learned about gender mainstream, which is, again, a social innovation. So this kind of guaranteed fast response builds this trust between the government and the civil society, making sure that things around mask use, around hand sanitation, around physical distancing, and our value and so on, people watch these daily uh, 2 p.m. press conferences And bit by bit, become kind of amateur epidemiologists that understand the underlying science, which is, again, very important if you're going to mobilize the whole society without relying on top-down lockdowns, which we never did.
0: So how how did you avoid um, those lockdowns? I think your sort of uh, slogan for your response is fast, fair and Mm -hmm. fun. I wondered if you could talk us through that.
1: Sure. So the fast part I, I talked about, and the fair part, uh, has a lot to do with the GovZero movement, which you already mentioned. The idea of GovZero movement is very simple. For every government website, uh, such as join the GOV.tw, um people who don't like this uh, service can build a shadow service just by changing an O to a zero. And, and that's it. And so without uh, paying for advertisement or anything, people learned that if you change gov.tw to g0v.tw, then you get into this kind of shadow government that uses the same data, but presented in a much more interactive and participatory way. And so in uh, fairness, for example, when we ramped up the facial mass production, making sure everybody can use their national health insurance card to collect masks from nearby pharmacies, fairness is, of course, our guiding principles. However, even before the government figure out how to make sure that people can see that this is being fairly distributed, there's a civic hacker, um, a uh, civic technologist from Tainan uh, with the name Howard Wu, who builds a map of all the nearby places that sells masks and relying on citizens to reply the current stock level, whether they have sold out or not. So this is not unlike like Ushahidi or other um, open source crowdsourcing uh, platforms. However, uh, because he did not anticipate that a lot of people, millions of people, would end up using this service, he very soon owed um, Google about 20k uh, euros uh, in API usage fees and have to close down that operation because he could not fund it himself. But the two day of this map running um, is sufficient to build a social sector consensus that this is exactly what's uh, for ensuring fa- fair distribution. So I showed this map, uh, how it was work, to our premier, uh, Su Zhen Chang, and he immediately saw the value of it and said that we need to dedicate our government resources to make sure that the citizens don't need to uh, pay for API usage fee by themselves. We should provide the underlying maps, underlying longitude, latitude, all the APIs, and trust the citizens with these urban data. So not only do we publish the stock level of all the pharmacies, as you can see here, The green ones are ones that still with a lot of in stock. Um, We also published the real time, uh, updated every 30 seconds at a time uh, for all adult and all the children's masks available in all the pharmacy. And it's all completely automated. And so for even people who don't like viewing maps, maybe people with blindness, they can use voice assistants, they can use chatbots, and all of them get the same inclusive access. And because Taiwan has more than 99.99% of health coverage, people who show any symptom will then be able to take the medical mask from nearby pharmacy, go to a local clinic, knowing surely that they will get treated fairly and without incurring any financial burden. And the civil society doesn't stop there. The civic technologist also made a lot of uh, dashboards that lets people see that, our supply, for example, when we started rationing like three masks per week, around this time we increased to be nine masks per, per two weeks for adults and ten for children uh, and these uh, are gets visibility from everybody because this is not a government website, this is just a civil society's contribution and this also showed us where in Taiwan do we have an oversupply or undersupply and we co-designed this experience with the pharmacy and we show this to our premier every week so uh, we can see him smiling happily here, because according to analysis, uh, the accessibility of Musk. Uh, at that time peaked at 70%, meaning that there's like 20% or so of people who never collected masks. It turned out that they are in large municipality in the north. They work very long hours. They started working when the pharmacies have not opened. They stopped working when the pharmacies have closed. So we had to work with uh, convenience stores, which opens 24 hours a day, which can use the same National Health Insurance Card to go there and collect your mask anytime. And at, at that time, then, uh, in, uh, we're, we're 23 million people, right? Uh, At now, 20, 21 million people have used the mass service one or another, which means that more than 90% of people have access to medical masks, and thereby ensuring the r not value that is under one, that is controlled. So, because of that, we ensure the fairness through the feedback from the social sector and also collaboration from the economic sector. So
0: it's so sort of harnessing the collective intelligence to, to improve your, your responsibility exactly. to the nation. Yes. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about quite a lot in the UK is around contact tracing, mm-hmm. um, and particularly well, whether that's sort of manual contact traces and sort of doing things by interview and people sending their contacts uh, mm-hmm. to our National Health Service or whether it's um using an app. What's mm-hmm. your approach been to contact tracing in Taiwan? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. In Taiwan, uh, we make sure that... Um, All the uh, information that we uh, collect, there is a civil society website called Talent Can Help That Us, uh, that this is not a government website. Uh, All of it is crowdsourced and crowdfunded, that you can look at uh, our designs. Um, Basically, we rely on data that's already collected, uh, for example the cell phone uh, strength uh, data to make sure that people who return uh, to Taiwan in an airport, they have the choice of going into a quarantine hotel in which case they're physically barred from leaving that hotel for 14 days or if they don't live with vulnerable people like very old people, they can also choose home quarantine, in, in which case their phone is um, basically put into a digital fence and if their phone leaves the like 50 me- uh, meter radius uh, that is the triangulation uh solution uh, of the, the uh, perimeter, then uh, SMS is sent to the local household manager wardens or the local police station who will then check of uh, what happens to you. So basically, we don't collect new data. We reuse existing data uh, and use it in a way that sends SMS automatically, uh, kind of like how uh, before an earthquake or uh, after a heavy rainfall, we send automatic warning uh, to a geofence. And this is called the digital fence that retains the data for 14 days, and after which, of course, there's no constitutional basis for us to run that data. But that data is already collected by all the telecoms anyway. So we see this as uh, proportional. It's ruled already as constitutional by the Constitutional Court after SARS. And this, of course, uh, be, uh, beats the 2003 response, which is to bear entire hospital unannounced and with no fixed termination date. And this is also important because we then never had to rely on application level tracing, which only makes sense if a majority of people start installing it. The cell phone tower triangulation and digital fence works regardless of which phone you're using.
0: Uh, again we've had a lot of discussion um in the uk and elsewhere about the sort of ethics and, keep, and privacy debates about you know people's data and how governments mm-hmm. are using it and um, mm-hmm. obviously some of that sort of digital fence technology you mentioned mm-hmm. that it's deleted quite quickly, but it mm-hmm. can be very intrusive. How have mm-hmm. you been? How, how have you dealt with those sort of privacy mm-hmm. debates? With your well,
1: if you operation? don't like the digital fence and you prefer to stay in the quarantine hotel for fourteen days, that's your choice, and we even pay you a stipend either way uh, of, ra- uh, uh, of around, I think, a hundred euros uh, per day. Uh, and but if you break the quarantine, is uh, a thousand times that fine. But in any case, so so the point is that of course being put into a quarantine hotel is also an intrusion uh, on pretty much anything, right? On the freedom of movement and so on. And because the digital fence is not GPS location, right? It it only knows uh, the kind of general perimeter of the phone. It doesn't know like which room in your home you are in. So the basic idea is that it should be proportional, uh, which is more or less like if you're staying in the hotel, the hotel, of course, makes sure you cannot use the elevator to go down, right? So so that's roughly the same thing. Um, and so, but we do understand that not everybody supports these measures. The CCC, the latest numbers, uh, 94% of people support these measures. Uh, previously, it was 91% uh, when the digital fence was being rolled out. So we thank the 6% or the 9% of the population which keep us honest and accountable because we have never declared a station uh, situation of emergency. We're still operating entirely under constitutional law limit, which means that every administration uh, t- detection, um, tactics we take, we need to be accountable to the MPs and to explain it to people. So if people understand how it works, the science behind it, that's how we get the 91% of support or 94 now but we still thank the remaining 9% or 6% for keeping us honest.
0: How has all the work that you've been doing over the the last decade or so to engage the public, um, opening things up to consultation, how much has that helped build that sort of trusted relationship?
1: A lot, a lot. A lot of our communication strategy, for example, was developed way before the coronavirus. It was developed uh, as a way to counter disinformation uh, using a tactic that we call humour over rumour. And The idea is that because we, we, we cannot do takedowns, takedowns is against the principle uh, of Taiwan being the most open society in, in the whole of Asia, so we're forced to innovate to counter the narrative of conspiracy theories of which there's a lot, especially during pandemic, but also leading up to an election without resorting to administrative takedowns and uh, encroaching the journalist freedom, because we want to work with journalists, not against journalists. So what we have discovered is that um, the viral uh messages that are toxic and polarizing is a little bit like a virus in the self, kind of a virus of the mind. And the reason why it has a high R value, uh, that is to say a person will look at it and just automatically share it to many people, um, is because that it provokes a sense of outrage. If you provoke a sense of outrage, people share it much more than if it provoked other uh, kind of feelings. And so how do we vaccinate against outrage? become the main uh, question. And we discovered that if we can respond within two hours, a fun message, and that capitalizes on the same keywords, but makes people laugh, then it's mutually exclusive with the feeling of outrage. It's actually impossible to feel outrage about something that you've already laughed about. And so, for example, during the uh, pandemic, it's a stressful time. People feel anxious, lots of panic buying lots of conspiracy theories, and there was a panic buying of tissue papers. There's was a rumor that said, well, Thomas has been ramping up the mass production from 2 million a day to 20 million a day. It's a, quote, same material, unquote, as tissue papers. So people panic buy it. So the same premier who smiled happily here with the convenience stores uh, pushed this within two hours and now showing his button, wiggling it a little bit, and says a very large print that each of us only have one pair of Botox. And so meaning that we don't need to panic buy. And a clear table that says, well, the facial masks are made out of domestic material, while tissue paper are imported using South American material. And this went absolutely viral because, you know, this whole meme, this design is literally a tissue paper box. And so people... uh, and uh, they, they are very uh, interested, curious even, because that's the first time that the premier made himself a, a butt of the joke, so to speak. Uh, and so because of that, uh, it, it has a much higher R value than the conspiracy theory. And people who have laughed about it will stop believing the conspiracy theory. So that rumor died down within a day or two. And finally we found out the person who spread the rumor in the first place was the tissue paper reseller. And this is not just a single shot. Um, social Media work. Every day, the CECC daily press conference gets translated by the spokes dog of the Ministry of Health and Welfare, or Zong Chai, the Doga CEO, the, the Shiba CEO. And they translated, for example, this is physical distancing. Um, in, when you're outdoors, you need to keep two Doga away from one another. When you're indoor, you have to keep three Doga away, or hand sanitation rules. Uh, remember to cover your mouth and nose when sneezing, or um, uh, wearing a mask. Uh, it reminds you not to put your hand uh, to your mouth as the dog does here. So remember to pre-order your mask. And all of this uh, factual humor that has a scientific basis spreads faster than rumor. that is how we make sure Taiwanese people feel calm and collected even during the pandemic.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Um, We touched a little bit on some of the work that you've done before and the pandemic around digital uh, government and public uh, engagement in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about your general Mm -hmm. approach to social digital innovation as as digital minister.
1: Sure. So this is my office, uh, literally my office, the Social Innovation Lab. Uh, It is in the heart of Taipei, uh, just uh, near the uh, Daan Central Park and the Jianguo Flower Market. And there's literally a park. Uh, We tore down all the walls so people can see very transparently as I work. Uh, and people can just knock the door every Wednesday and have 40 minutes of my time uh, and just chat about pretty much anything as long as they agree to publish a transcript or the video online. And because of this, uh, I'm very accessible. People can see that whenever people feel that there is kind of a tension uh, between, say, economic development on one side, environmental protection on the other, or scientific innovation on one side and social justice on the other, um, instead of uh, relying on... Um, uh, different siloed ministries, uh, each ministry that's participating in the social innovation uh, have a secondment uh, in my office. So my office is literally from like 12 different ministries, and each of them agreed to work out loud, meaning that all the new ideas that they develop get spread automatically to the people. So when people come up with a new innovation, a social innovation, for example self-driving tricycles, they can work with nearby flower market to ensure that instead of a technologists dictating the social norm, it's a society working with those self-driving tricycles to say, hey, maybe in the flower market this can be kind of self-driving shopping carts that follow people around, you buy some flowers, you put into it, and it follows you. And that is not the way that it was originally designed, but through the idea of open innovation, we can change a, a lot of that part and make a co-design, a collaborative design so that it then responds to the social norms. This is called norm-first design or in SDG terms, 1717, 17, encouraging effective partnerships and all the best ideas. We choose five ideas every year that receive a trophy from the president. And the trophy is a micro projector. There's a shape of Taiwan and a micro projector um, underneath it. And when you turn on the micro projector, it shows Dr. Tsai Ing-wen, our president, handing the trophy to you, which is very meta, it's a self-describing trophy, uh, and that symbolizes whatever you have built in the past three months in a data collaborative, we uh, do everything we can to make your idea into national policy within the next 12 months, so that ensure the availability of cross sectoral data and making sure that whether it's air quality, water quality, um, sustainable education for global citizenship, all of those great ideas are voted into existence using quadratic voting, which is, again, another social innovation. So basically, it's a system to make sure that the best idea gets amplified automatically into the national scale.
0: Um, I've got a quote from your president here, actually, which is, do it bravely, dare to make mistakes. That's right. I think people often find governments can be quite risk averse because of the the nature of the the sort of world they operate in. How do you overcome that?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually a, a UK idea. That we learned is called a sandbox. Uh, Whereas the the UK initially applied this idea to fintech, we have applied it to pretty much everything. Um, And so it could be a a platform economy sandbox. Uh, The Social Innovation Lab was a sandbox for self driving vehicles. Now the self driving buses are going to the street of Taipei City. Um, There's 5G sandboxes uh, for um, especially above 6 gigahertz uh, for a limited place to try that use of 5G. Uh, there's actually, uh, we the, our sandbox regulations is phrased such that you can challenge each and every ministry's regulations, except for two things. That's money laundering and funding terrorism, because we know what happens. We don't have to experiment on these two things. But otherwise, everything is fair game. And so because of that, um, the government basically work with the innovators. I tour around Taiwan to the places that are least connected, that is to say to who are most difficult to travel to my uh, office at the Social Innovation Lab. And the local... Um, Co-ops, the local social entrepreneurs, uh, the local um, elders, uh, in both sense, uh, from the indigenous nations, and so on, uh, they just, uh, in a regular hall, they just voice their concern. The difference is that because we have broadband as a human right, no matter where I am, uh, for 16 euros per month, there's unlimited 4G, bandwidth, at least 10 megabits per second. Otherwise, it's my fault, personally. Uh, and so through those cultural translators, uh, we connect to the people in the social innovation lab as i mentioned 12 ministries each of them section chief or higher level who listen to the local people of what they truly need and this has two benefits first that it doesn't get lost in translation right they hear exactly what the local people wants and second if the local people want to try something that's not uh, like a great area uh, by the current regulation they can say okay let's try it out for a year and if it doesn't work well we think the investors for paying the tuition. Basically, everybody learns something Where the investor lose the initial investment. It's like reverse lottery. Uh, but if uh, they works, then uh, they get a first mover advantage. And then uh, we have a new law or regulation that's co-created by people. But of course, the obvious question is that then how do we know at the end of that year it's a good idea or not? How do we listen at scale and get the people's feedback well, we also use AI for that. There's an AI power conversation. Uh, by AI, I mean assistive intelligence called Polis where it lets people see what other people feel about any particular issue. For example, during the Uber case uh, in 2015, we shared the data, we asked for three or four weeks of what people feel about it and the best idea are the ones that take care of people's feelings and finally we turn it into a regulation. So at that time, no matter whether people is pro-Uber or against Uber, actually everybody agreed that passenger liability insurance, their registration uh, and the taxation are the most important thing. And so we made that into our new regulation. So every time we run polis, we see that while the social media and some institutional media may over-focus on the ideological divisions, we don't actually touch that we acknowledge that but we just work on the consensus statements which are something that everybody agrees with their neighbors about and we just regulate those into existence nowadays in taiwan police is regularly used um, every civil servant learns that they can just run a police conversation wait for three weeks or four weeks and voila they have a set of rough consensus that they can base their regulation on
0: um, this is actually one of the first questions that somebody's um asked. And just to remind everybody, um, I will be putting questions to Audrey very shortly. Um, so if you'd like to ask any, you can use hashtag IFG Digital on Twitter, you can use the chat on this live stream broadcast, or you can go to bit.ly/slash ifg tongue. Um, so Nathan Young um sort of said he read that you'd use the v Taiwan uh, platform, which uses polis. To mediate between taxi drivers and citizens, and that was a few years ago. So, what new steps have you been taking on crowdsourcing policy since then? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, we've been since uh, combining the use of polis of face-to-face deliberations, much as uh, what I showed uh, in this teleconference um, room uh, where we bring all the uh, five municipalities and many more cities into the same uh, large virtual room. Uh, we make sure that we host such an open collaboration session um, every once in a while, actually uh, two times per, per month. And just actually um, this morning, we're talking about that yes, uh, last year we used polis, five polis actually, to talk about how to open up the hiking, the mountaineering, Um, the restrictions about hiking. And now we're talking about opening up the sea and how those sea sports and so on uh, need to be uh, opened up for more people to understand uh, the ocean uh, and preserving the sustainability of the ocean. Taiwan has like 10% of the world's marine biodiversity. And all these are, of course, very open-ended questions of which POLIS is perfect uh, to, to do. And so we combine POLIS with this national join platform. It's called join the GOV, the TW, which is a single um, platform, a single stop platform for e-petitions, for regulatory pre-announcements and consultation, like the opening up mountains and, and the ocean. And also, most importantly, it's also participatory budget platform. So it's the same platform. And you can see how each and every uh, ministry is doing its budgets. You can see that long-term healthcare is at the moment the top um, thing that people are concerned about. You can see the KPIs, how much they're uh, working, and there's um, comment board of course, and then there's also quarterly responses that says that how we have changed our um, ongoing policy. So this, while Vitao was mostly about like pre-legislation, we now have completely full life cycle, so that even during the 10-year project, that's a long-term healthcare project, we're on only the third year. You can, uh, between 2017 and 2026, uh, work in real time. Uh, with the public servants here, and they only uh, answer once publicly, and everybody can very easily discover like how this um, presidential promise, how this long-term project is doing. And so a single um, joint.gov.tw is our main uh, change after the initial prototype in Taiwan. Now pretty much all the regulations and most of the draft bills went through this public consultation process for almost always uh, 60 days. And so that's the norm. If they fast track it to 14 days, they have to write why. And so uh, the norm is to do a public consultation for each and everything. And so because of this join, that GOV.TW has more than 10 million unique visitors out of the country of 23 million people. That's almost half of the people.
0: Excellent, thank you. Um, I'm going to start taking questions from Slido now. Um, so, and people, just remind everybody watching that you can, as well as submitting questions on Slido, actually vote for your favourites. So I'm going to start with the the top voted questions so far. Um, this is from Gavin Heyman uh, of the Open Contracting Partnership which is how did Taiwan handle emergency procurement? And how do you keep it transparent if it involves sole sourcing? And, and how do you make sure that you sort of get the resources through to the front line and make sure that they've made it through to the front line?
1: That's an excellent question. Um, in particular, because we have not declared the emergency situation. And so all of the, the things that I show you was done using Uh, regular procurement regulations. Uh, And in our regular procurement regulation, there's uh, something that says um, if the uh, minister uh, is willing to say that uh, this needs to go to a specific vendor, uh, they they can actually do so uh, without consulting anybody, basically putting their name on it. Uh, But of course, there's a limit to it. Uh, I think this only applies to things that are around uh, or under 25,000 uh, British pounds. Uh, and so for each and every uh, prototypes like this, they have this kind of discretionary budget use that we use uh, often to explore the various different solutions. So that's one answer in that we can do an early design uh, procurement in emergency. If it works, then of course we do a larger one with the proper uh, process of multiple bits. And the other thing is that the, uh, the social sector actually contributes a lot of these things without any procurements needed. Basically, uh, for example, when we did this uh, mass map out of nowhere, um, the HTC, which is a company that you know, used to make pretty good phones, still makes pretty good phones, uh, but mo- most of them get bought by Google, uh, HTC uh, makes a, a chatbot, a, a line chatbot, and that actually solves a major problem with maps, which is, um, is quite bandwidth intensive. So with the chatbot uh, formulation, people can just uh, go to the chatbot, ask, uh, I'm here, where are my nearby pharmacy? And shows a few cards. And it doesn't need to zoom in or out or anything. It just takes you there. And they finish the development in like 24 hours without any procurement because we publish the open data every 30 seconds. So for the chatbot developer, that's that's golden because then you can go to... The nearby pharmacy swipe your nhi card procure uh, sorry purchase uh, nine masks. and after like a couple of minutes the ch- chatbot can actually tell you that this uh, stock if you're a adult then this become uh, like 49 right so so basically it's instant gratification something line chatbots really like uh, and also people are basically participating in a, a ledger this way this is a distributed ledger if you go to the pharmacy purchase and after a couple of minutes this rather goes up into like 60 then you will call 1922 and something bad happened because then the ledger isn't working so instead of the traditional freedom of information act which uh, usually publishes like every week uh, or at most every day this is not open data anymore this is open api because it's almost always real time. And once it's real time, there's a lot in those uh, service providers, the chapter of developers' uh, interest to provide this as a value-added service at pretty much no development cost to their uh, customers. And because of that, people just develop it voluntarily. They don't really need procurement money because this also adds to their bottom line.
0: Excellent, thanks. Um, We've got a question now from Kate O'Loughlin. She asks, isn't there a problem with the geofence that you were talking about earlier, that people could leave their homes without taking their phones with them?
1: Yeah, which is why of course the chatbot uh checks on you uh a little bit um like in random intervals and asks how are you feeling, what's your temperature? Would you like to take a picture with your thermometer uh and things like that? There's of course that part of that. And if your phone runs out of battery, then of course um after a few minutes a police will come and visit you. Uh and so but people are addicted to their phone anyway. So in practice we don't we don't see a lot of that problem.
0: Uh, I'm going to roll a couple of questions uh, which are related together. So Nathan Yang asks, um, what do you think is the best way to reduce the siloing of information within different parts of government? And that matches quite nicely with this question from Joe Mitchell, which is, have you had any trouble convincing your fellow ministers of the importance of transparency, trusting the citizens and so on?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Taiwan, uh, we reduced the siloing of information by making sure that when we procure, um, we can make sure that the vendor can deliver a machine readable version that's to say the open API specification or OAS three. Uh, I think the GDS in UK eventually recommended OS three, uh, but that's I think um, two years and a half after we did <laughs> we, we, we recommended that uh, even before OAS became the official standard and I think that was in late 2016 and we basically said that during procurement um, we treat api as a sort of accessibility, because there's a section in our procurement uh, template that says if the uh, vendor charges extra to make it so that people with blindness can uh, see the information, then that vendor is not professional and could actually be disqualified for charging extra to make uh, their websites accessible. Accessibility should be universal. It should be the default. And we kind of changed the template to say that machine-to-machine uh, API is a kind of people with blindness. And if you discriminate against bots, well, we didn't quite say that, but if you say that you need to charge a lot more uh, for providing open API for uh this human visible and human input places, then you could also get disqualified just by doing that. And so that kind of forced all our vendors to speak open API by default. And once you speak open API by default, of course you would design your front end in a decoupled way that basically works across all the different, uh, like maps, apps, chatbots, and voice assistant, because then they all will talk to the same API. And once the procurement system integrated, getting into the habit of API-first design, then the sidling of information is automatically solved, because your front-end, your back-end, is then uh, thoroughly decoupled. And everybody who wants to use the same backend data for a different front-end application, just like the HTC DeepQ team, they do not need to ask anything about the other front-end like map developers, because they will just look it up on the open data portal and then see where the open API is. So our open data portal, if you refresh quickly enough, then you just tick the API box, and that ensures that your procurement goes successfully.
0: Excellent. And um, how have you sort of approached uh, bringing other ministers and other parts of government with you in this sort of mm-hmm. journey yeah. towards more transparency? Sure.
1: sure. So, so my theory of change is very simple, right? Um, it's three axes. It first, it saves uh, people time, re- reduces the, sh- the chores. It reduces political risk, because when it's the people's idea and we just support people's idea, there's no political risk whatsoever. And, and finally, th- there's due credit for all the public servants involved. Because back in the day, before that, we had this open collaboration meetings for these people that you see here, the section chief's career public service. If things go wrong, it's their fault. But if things go right, well, it's the minister's credit. It would be my credit, right? But now, because people see them eye to eye, and we keep a transparent record of each and every decision made, it's their credit when things go right. And Uh, It's my my fault if things go wrong, because I'm the one who came up with this crazy idea of radical transparency. And so this flips the the ideas around uh, around, uh, credit sharing. And so uh, it's like three dimensions. So as I said, less work, less risk, more credit. And we only make Pareto improvement, meaning that we never trade one for the other two. We only make piecemeal improvement on one without sacrificing the other two. and so from the other minister's viewpoint, this is essentially a, a no-brain deal, because who wouldn't want you know less work, uh, less risk and more credit and more trust?
0: Thank you. Um, we've got a question now from Julian McCrae, the director of Engage Britain. What's been most effective in getting civil servants to trust and actually seek out the input of citizens into developing policy?
1: The most effective way, as I have found out, um, is that uh, when we have no idea. If you have some idea, then people are either for that idea or against the idea. But if you get into the habit of saying, well, I have no idea, please come up with some idea. And then then that always works. And so the citizens uh, really like the uh, agenda setting phase of policy development because that's where their experience truly counts. When you move forward into, in design thinking terms, into develop and delivery, that actually requires a lot of professional expertise. But when you're in the first diamond, that is to say, if you're just discovering and defining, then people are very happily contributing their ideas. And, uh, we, um, basically have a, uh, called PO.P.TW. PO is for participation officer, uh, that outlines, um, what is participation officer, the directions, how do you choose collaboration topics, and the principle for how to interview people, the process, the toolkit, and things like that. There's this whole um, regulations, if you want to copy it in your uh, jurisdiction, please feel free to do so. Uh, and we make sure that people learn about how to choose the proper ideas, the proper uh, processes uh, to, to make that happen. And so, as I said, if you start with agenda setting, then people can very easily see that they are themselves setting the agenda. So most of our collaboration meetings, why it's so important to have open uh, registration of presidential hackathon, like more than 200 teams this year, or sandbox applications or the joint platform with e-petitions and so on. That's because when people mobilize to, Give us those idea. There's already some stakeholders there. And so for this civil service, uh, this is guaranteed to be more signal than noise. Um, and when you're in that stage, if you take away the reply button, as we did during Polis, and also actually Slido too, there's no uh, reply button on Slido either. If you don't have the reply button, then people can only add to each other's ideas. They can never um, attack each other. They can never subtract each other's idea if you don't agree with me you probably have to propose something that other people agree with if you don't think a slider question is worth asking it doesn't uh, pay to attack that person Uh, you have to propose something more interesting for other people to upvote. so also design your interaction platform so that for civil servants you always get more signal than noise and because of that then the civil servants will trust the system more if it's early enough in the agenda setting stage
0: uh, just a reminder to everybody watching, if you'd like to put a question uh, to Audrey, you can use hashtag IFGDigital on Twitter. You can use the live stream chat on this broadcast or you can use our Slido, uh, which is bit.ly slash IFGTongue. And um, I'm going to take another question from Slido now, uh, which is actually about one of the processes that you mentioned earlier. Um, could you explain how quadratic voting works?
1: OK, certainly. So in quadratic voting, everybody, the 10 million visitors um, <clears throat> have joined the GOV.TW the looks at the 200 or so uh, proposals uh, on that platform. Uh, and then everybody gets 99 points. Now, every single um, project needs to be already SDG index, meaning that you need to respond to one or more of the sustainable development goals. So they are all problems worth solving. The main thing to ask people is what are the best ideas that's worth coaching, right? So people, of course, there's no one who uh, understands all the uh, details of all the 169 sustainable development goal targets. So people naturally will mobilize and vote for the one that they feel the most um, interested in. However, if you give people 99 points, chances are, if you like dot voting, people will just vote 99 points to the first thing that they think is good or their their friends and family call them to vote. Quadratic voting says that you can't do that. If you vote for one vote, that's going to cost you one point. But if you're going to vote two votes, that's going to cost you four points. And three votes is going to cost you nine. And so with 99 points, all you can do is vote nine votes. Um, this particular one, which is SDG 6.5, which is about using a IoT device on the waterways to automatically detect the pollutions to the agri uh by the uh, industrial plants nearby. And for the low-abiding industrial plants, also by those water boxes to prove that the pollution came from upstream. It's a pretty good idea. And so, uh, and power by this this Ledger. And so if you really like the idea, you can vote nine. But then you still have 18 points left out of your 99. So you don't want to squander those points. So we'll probably look into other ideas. For example, using computer vision to reduce marine pollutions by stopping those marine debris before they hit the the shores. that's a pretty good idea. And you still have, what, 18. So you will vote four, which costs you 16. And then you have two more. So maybe you look into two other points. At some point, you will discover that some and something have synergy with something else. So maybe you take some of these back and do the seven and seven. And so in mechanism term, design terms, in mechanism design terms, the marginal cost and the marginal return is equivalent in the quadratic voting, which means that the most strategic voting method is to reveal your true social preference, which contributes more to the com- complete picture of the sustainable goals. And people are motivated to learn about four or five of those sustainable goals. So unlike traditional one-person-one-vote or one-person-dot-voting, most people feel they have won when we announced the top 24 this year. Because other than um, the people who have never voted, uh, everybody who have voted, they average vote for maybe five or six teams. And one of them is bound to be part of the top 24. So everybody feels they have won, unlike the traditional kind of binary voting where half of people will feel they have lost or everybody in, in some other cases. Yeah.
0: Uh, next, we have a question from John M., uh, which is, how have you addressed access to hardware issues for people with lower incomes where the cost could potentially bar their access to some of these systems?
1: That's called public libraries and also uh, digital opportunity centers. As I mentioned, broadband is a human right, but also they can go to their local digital opportunity center uh, or public library uh, and just um, rent um, for for Novi actually uh, a device that's guaranteed to be made in the last three years.
0: Great. Um, We next have a question from uh, UK open data expert, Peter Wells. Morning, Peter. Um, Why do you think the UK and indeed other European Union countries have focused on app-based contact tracing rather than using existing data? And do you think anything might change that, perhaps looking looking to the Taiwanese example?
1: Well, the thing is that... The digital fence worked the way it is, using very coarse grained, uh, like 50 meters, precisely because uh, we do border control. So we do very strict enforcement. And during those 14 days of quarantine, a lot of human rights, not just privacy, but right of movement, uh, is, you know, encroached. But then it applies fairly to everybody. So it also doesn't have a labeling effect. However, if you don't do the fence at your uh, ports, then you have to do defense in the community. And once it's in the community, um, 50 meters is too coarse grand. And that's why people start getting the idea of uh, we should use Bluetooth or even we should use GPS data if it's stored in uh, centralized databases. Um, So I think it's a conscious choice uh, by Taiwan to do most of our protection, uh, the strict uh, measures at the borders so that we can live uh, in a much more relaxed fashion uh, in communities so that we ensure that hand sanitation, mask use, physical distancing, these three measures together is enough to put our value of being under one. So that's a conscious choice, but you probably cannot do that unless you have near universal mask wearing, uh, which of course um, is a culture thing. But in Taiwan, as I mentioned uh, in the Doga CEO picture, we, we put these pictures together because we say that masks are something that reminds you not to touch your face and wash your hands properly. So mask is a social signal. It's mostly a psychological tool. And, and for this, everybody agrees with that, right? The scientific evidence and so on about masks uh, like uh, blocking uh, filtration or whatever capability, that's up to the debate and up to the fabric of the mask. But wearing even a mask made out of a T-shirt um, reminds you not to touch your face and reminds you to wash your hands properly, probably everybody can accept that. And by a few people, even just a few people in a large crowd, sending the social signal, it enabled people to take care of each other, saying, hey, why are you not protecting yourself from your own hands? You should probably also wear a mask. And that enabled this idea of wearing a mask to have a high R value uh, in the idea, idea uh, meme space. Uh, and because of that, everybody started wearing a mask.
0: Excellent. I think you've answered a question that Judith Richards had put on Slido, actually, which was, uh, do you think masks are key, especially in places where we cannot social distance? It sounds like your, your answer to that would very much be, be yes, as it sort of um, helps shape the rest of the strategy. Um, just to remind everybody, we've got about 10 minutes left. If you've got any final questions for Audrey, please do put them on Slido now. That's bit.ly slash ifgtongue. Um, So we have a question from Steve Lloyd. Um, There's been a lot of discussion in in the UK recently about local lockdown measures. So perhaps not the entire country um, is abiding by the same rules and it's able to adjust according to to the level of outbreak. Um, So he's asking, do you have any advice regarding the moving out of lockdown measures on a local level?
1: Mm Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We we have um, simulated, um, like, if there is a limited local community transmission, uh, there may be uh, places where we will just have a certain area That is self-sustaining, meaning that it has most of the kind of groceries and things like that, so that we can do a very contained local lockdown while the rest of Taiwan still free of lockdowns. So that we have simulated. But what uh, Steve Lloyd is asking is essentially the other way around that is to say the rest of the, the country in lockdown, but only one part uh, out of lockdown. Um, if it's an island, then of course go for it. <laughs> but otherwise, I think you need to carefully plan, as we did on the border control, uh, how how to um, screen the people and how to make sure that people who tra- transfer between those different uh, municipalities uh, carry uh, a the same quarantine obligation, essentially, uh, as we did for our returning citizens. If you can do the quarantine and contact tracing, using regular interviews and so on, well then there's no reason why you could not do that because that's essentially what Taiwan did uh, because we're a set of islands. But if you cannot uh, do that uh, with efficiency, if your contact tracer's um, uh, capacity is not there, then of course there's an inherent risk uh, in doing that. And that actually is one of the points that that we made in Taiwan Can Help That Us which is this, uh, as I mentioned, crowdsourced um, website of the Taiwan model uh, is that we make sure that people who um, eventually see those measures such as the lockdowns and now the partial relaxation and, and so on understand the scientific reason why. So this person is Chen Chenren, uh, vice president of Taiwan at the time trained and John Hopkins, uh, our top epi- epidemiologist actually wrote a textbook on epidemiology. Uh, and so our top scientist doesn't have to convince our top official because he was the top official. Uh, and in, in this case, um, he recorded this crash course on the popular MOOC, uh, data. Database the Hahao, uh, where a lot of people enroll in online learning. So I think more than twenty thousand people uh, enrolled in the first few days, uh, me included. So that he explained all the different models uh, and the different simulations. And if you're interested, you can also um, there's a interactive version of that at um, I think Nikki Case ncase.me slash covid nineteen uh, that uh, says what happens next. Uh, which you can take Dr. Chen Jianlan's courses but then verify his numbers by simulating all the various lockdown scenarios and things like that. So my, my main point is that um, if everybody become kind of an amateur epidemiologist, then this kind of localized measures will work, because everybody who travel there and travel out of it will understand why are those measures in place and what effect is it having on the population. But if people don't understand the underlying science, um, then of course there will be people who do not um, um, innovate uh, to in advance for those goals, but rather innovate um, in the opposition of those goals. Uh, I think that's the, the most mild way that they can put
0: this. Excellent. I have a feeling we'll have quite a few people enrolling on that course after this event has finished today. Um, we've got a question now from Terence Eden, um, who works on open standards at NHSX and did a fantastic talk on why making things open makes things better as part of our Data series of events last month. Um, he asks. We see lots of open source code from Taiwan and indeed from other countries, Um, but most countries are still trying to roll out their own coronavirus-related services. What's stopping the reuse of your code?
1: Well, nothing is stopping reuse of our code. I think this is mostly culture. Uh, If we put our code up, uh, out there, as we did in the coronavirus hackathon, uh, cohack.tw. Um, as you can see, uh, everybody who participated see very clearly uh, that uh, from various different countries, including the UK. Um, People design those privacy-enhancing technologies that enable, for example, working with contact tracers, but uh, all the data is kept in your own phone and only sends a one-time link to the contact tracer for the information they need without divulging any privacy of anybody else you have uh, encountered. And autonomy does that on a um, community level. Gemini does the storytelling, part visualization of that, and so on. And each and every one of them uh, agree to abide by the spirit of the open source and agree to use the MIT license, which is one of the most permissive licenses for their work. And so as more countries participate in this sort of innovation, people will get more into the culture of just learning from one another. But if you start with a procurement strategy that doesn't include open source and open API in even template language, as Taiwan did, then of course it works very counterintuitively, because after all, you did not pay Taiwan, and why would you then use Taiwan's code? So there's a lot to do to change the culture around procurement to basically uh, avoid the not invented here um, culture. I think this is a culture thing and not, uh, not at all a license thing. The license thing is just the uh, underpinning. The culture is what needs change around procurement. And, and how, how do you change that, do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, two things. Right? First, write it into the template language so that open is by default. And if you don't uh, do open, you have to write a reason why. This is like the regulation that needs to be open for open consultation for 60 days. There are still ways to kind of work around that, but you have to say exactly why. And that why is also kind of accountable to the entire population. So when there was a draft bill uh, where people said, uh, where the minister said, oh, we need to fast track this to seven days because otherwise we will not meet the parliamentary schedule. They drew a lot of flack from the journalists who say you could have published a draft like, A couple of weeks earlier, then you will meet a parliamentary schedule and then you will still have at least 30 days of public deliberation. So making the default smart, that is my first uh, suggestion. The second thing is that the the civil service uh, are also citizens. So many of them are also very much willing to use open data from other nearby um, siloed um, departments. And you need to encourage that internal innovation or so-called intrapreneurship, right? So when the HTC, which is a contractor of the Center for Disease Control, uses the National Health Insurance Agency's uh, mask data, I made sure to publicly um, just give them a lot of credit to make sure that I share a lot of their stories in my talks to their ministers and so on. Because when the... uh, the minister level, encourage this kind of internal entrepreneurship and even participate, like I did, like as a programmer, I just help fixing their code, uh, then people will get very encouraged to use data across silos, not personal data, open data across silos. But if the minister level doesn't give uh, it a thumbs up, then uh, they would end up absorbing the risk while getting no credit, and in, in which case there is no um, uh, culture possible for the open within the uh, public service. So for public citizens uh, to make sure that their social innovation gets amplified for the civil servants, make sure that their ministers are uh, show an active interest uh, in building an open culture, and then you will have the culture of uh, avoiding the knee syndrome, the not invented here syndrome.
0: So, I'm going to squeeze in one final question, and it's actually a perfect final question from Joachim von Hallas on Slido. What are your ideas and developments for the future? What are you working on next?
1: Okay, so. Um, as with uh, um, every other questions like this, this is time for me to read my job description. So <laughs> I mentioned about the sustainable goals and how my work is in the 17s, which is building effective partnership. Of course, that is my main uh, goal. Um, and our president promises in her second term, which begins um, just just a month ago, <laughs> uh, not even a month ago, that we will now have a dedicated uh, cabinet level um, digital council or ministry. Uh, that takes care of this um, cross-silo uh, policymaking that enhances even more of reliable data, and also do open innovation, making sure that open innovation is a dedicated council or ministry in Taiwan. Now, people ask a lot, why. Call it digital. Why not call it information and communication technology uh, or ICT? Because that's the more um, usual term as used in Taiwan, because Taiwan is, you know, Taiwan semiconductor and so on, very good on ICT. Uh, But we insist on calling it digital. So I wrote a poem, a prayer that explains the difference between ICT and the digital. And that's my job description, which I'll read to you now. When we see the Internet of Things, let's make it an Internet of Beings. When we see virtual reality, let's make it a shared reality. When we see machine learning, let's make it collaborative learning. When we see user experience, let's make it about human experience. And whenever we hear the singularity is near, let us always remember the plurality is here. And that's digital. Thank you so much.
0: What a perfect note to end on, and what a great way to start the week. Um, thank you, everyone, who's uh, tuned in. Thank you for some brilliant questions uh, that we've received from everybody. And please, everyone, thank me, um, join me in a virtual round of applause for the fantastic Audrey Tal. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Audrey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more, and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.